to take your Bibles once again, turn to John chapter 10. As we said, we're going to uh, finish um, talking about uh, uh, or continue talking about chapter 10, verses uh, 7 through 10 tonight. And uh, we're going to talk about the abundant life. If you came to hear um, uh, techniques on how the youth, uh, the assistant pastor can arm wrestle the pastor, then you're going to be disappointed because we're not going to talk about that tonight at all. But um, uh, anyway, tonight we're going to talk about the abundant life. Now, the American dream, everybody's heard about that, right? And uh, uh, that's uh, called uh, the American dream is to pursue the good life, uh, whatever that is. Well, we usually have an idea what that is. We, it usually means owning your own home, uh, having a couple of late model cars in your garage and Maybe a boat or a, a, a an RV as well, and retiring to a comfortable life, doing whatever you like. And I think some of you probably did have that uh, already. But the rich and the famous supposedly enjoy this good life, and uh, it's all over some of the magazines that you see in the in the stores, uh, uh, like uh, People magazine. They always have these uh, these. Uh, rich and famous people on the covers, and you know, they're so happy, they have so much in this world, and uh, uh, we try to maybe vicariously enter into their lives and dream what it would be like to have riches like they have. That's the American dream, but while many Americans are financially comfortable, uh, they may have changed, uh, achieved the good life. Most of them have missed the abundant life that Jesus promised to all that follow him. What is the abundant life? Well, some of those false teachers I was talking to about this morning, uh, they uh, tried to promote the prosperity gospel. And they um, have actually uh, baptized the materialistic American dream with some Christian labels. And except for their outlandish hairdos and their Christian jargon, these prosperity preachers look pretty much like unbelieving Americans in their pursuit of stuff. The pursuit of stuff. You know what that is, don't you? More stuff you can get, you know. If you can uh, get a big enough house or a big enough storage area, maybe you don't have enough room in your house, so you go rent one of these storage units down here and get your stuff put in there. And uh, that way you can keep it for who knows what, you know, maybe a big garage sale one day, you know, right? But, you know, the abundant life that Jesus promised has nothing to do with collecting more stuff. It has everything to do with being right with God. And that is through faith in Christ and having the hope of eternity spent in his presence. The Apostle Paul wasn't rich in this world's good, but he enjoyed the abundant life that Christ offers. He was content with just food and clothes, but he was rich toward God. He gained those riches by coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will gain those riches by coming to know Jesus Christ if you have not already done so. Uh, In fact, in our text, Jesus claims to be the door through which his sheep enter to experience the abundant life. Uh, This is uh, actually uh, when he says in Verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. This is the third of the seven I am statements. Uh, That means the Lord's message is himself. Christianity is not primarily a bunch of rules or rituals. Christianity is Christ. 
Christ himself in our text teaches that Jesus is the only door to abundant life for all who would enter through him. Uh, Jesus again uses verily, verily. You notice it there in verse 7. Then said Jesus unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you. And this is again to alert us to something that's very, very important. Uh, we have four verses with four important truths here. And the first one is that Jesus is the only door. In verse 2 and 3, the scene was a common sheepfold that we spoke of this morning in the village where different shepherds would bring their sheep each night. Uh, there was a hired doorkeeper to guard the ent- entrance. But now the scene probably shifts out to the country uh, where the shepherd would take his sheep for summer pasture. And uh, the uh, shepherd would build a protective enclosure for the sheep so he could, uh, so they could go in for protection and go out to be fed. And the shepherd himself would lay across the opening of that shelter at night. And so Jesus could be both the shepherd and the door. Any intruders would, uh, would have to go by him in order to get to the sheep. And so as the door, he let in the true sheep and he excluded the predators or the thieves and the robbers, as he spoke of uh, in earlier verses here, those who would harm the sheep. It was G. Campbell Morgan who tells us of a conversation that he had with Sir George Adam Smith, a scholar who had spent much time in the Near East. And Smith told of a meeting, a meeting a shepherd there who showed him the fold where the sheep were led at night. And it consisted of four walls with a way in. Smith asked, that is where you go at night, right? Yes, the shepherd said. And when the sheep are in there, they're perfectly safe, right? Uh, Yes, but there's no door. The shepherd replied, I am the door. Now, this man was not a Christian man, but he was an Arab shepherd. But you know what? He was using the same language that Jesus used. He explained further that the light, uh, when the light was gone and all the sheep were inside, I lie in the open space and no sheep ever goes out across, but across my body and no wolf ever comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. And Jesus is the door. He's the only door of the sheep. No apostle or prophet could make such a claim. Only Jesus, the Messiah, could legitimately say, I am the door. And it's the same thing that he later claims in chapter 14 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Uh, Jesus was claiming to be the exclusive, only way to God. And just as there's only one door into the ark and only one door into the tabernacle, So Jesus is the only door to salvation into God's presence. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2.18, For through him we both have access by one spirit and unto the Father. You know, unbelievers are okay with it if you say, you know, Jesus is a door to God. You know, that's okay. You can say Jesus is a door. And they think, well, that's okay. Muhammad is also a door. Buddha is a door. And nature is a door. You know, all religions lead to God, right? Now, they all have many, there are many doors. But when you draw the line that Jesus drew and insist, no, he is the only door, 
You get accused of being intolerant. Uh, you get accused of being a bigot. Now, I don't care for this man here very much. I don't care for C.S. Lewis, although often he's often quoted by many professors and preachers. Maybe you've heard him quoted. Maybe you've read some of his books. But whenever I come across someone quoting or praising C.S. Lewis and his works, red flags go up for me. Uh, Here, I'm naming names, okay? I talked about that this morning a little bit. Well, here's a name I would would caution you about. Uh, He's he's been greatly uh, praised and and, uh, followed by many even so-called evangelicals or fundamentalists. But you know what he believed? He believed in purgatory. He believed in baptismal regeneration. Lewis believed in prayers for the dead. Lewis never gave up his unholy fascination with paganism. Lewis claimed that followers of pagan religions can be saved without personal faith in Jesus Christ. Now I could go on and on here, but at this last one uh, that I just mentioned here, this last belief of uh, Lewis is shown in what he said when he wrote this. He said, there are people, listen carefully, there are people who do not accept full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by him that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. There are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. For example, he says, a Buddhist of goodwill may be led to concentrate more and more on Buddhist teaching about mercy and leave in the background, though he might though he might still say he believed the Buddhist teaching on certain points. I say, whoa there. Careful. That's heresy. That's just out and out heresy. You see, the thing that Lewis is missing is the fact that all people, whether they're Buddhist of goodwill, or if they're good Catholics, or even good Baptists, all are sinners by nature and can only be saved through faith in the death of Christ to atone for their sins. And as Peter put it to the good Jews, the so-called good Jews of his day in Acts 4.12, there is none other salvation, none other name given among uh, in heaven among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only door. So be careful for those false teachers out there, even though so-called good people will quote them, and they may be popular. Be careful. Notice, secondly, all others are thieves and robbers. Verse 8. All that came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. Now, obviously, Jesus was not 
saying that godly men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the other prophets, they were thieves and robbers. He's not saying that. In the context, though, he is referring to those who preyed on the sheep and used them for their own selfish ends. And he was especially speaking of the thieves and robbers who were standing right there before him, the Pharisees who were not godly shepherds over Israel. They were like the false shepherds that we talked about in Ezekiel 34 this morning. Or as the Lord said in Jeremiah 23, verses 1 and 2, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my sheep, ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. Now the Lord goes on to describe how, uh, I just read that, I'm sorry, I didn't get that slide there, but the Lord goes on to describe how he will regather his flock and raise up the righteous branch of David in, in Jeremiah 23, verse 6, where he said, in, the, in his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. In John chapter 10 and verse 8, Jesus repeats the truth that he stated in verse 5, that his true sheep will not hear or follow a false shepherd. They will persevere by following Jesus. Sometimes the Lord's true sheep may be led astray by a false shepherd for a while. But Jesus promises back or down in chapter uh, 10 here in verse 27 and 28, that he will keep them. Notice what it says down in verse 27, 28. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. John indicates that if people are not his true sheep, eventually they're going to leave. In 1 John 2, 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they are not all of us. And so Jesus is the only door of the sheep. All others who claim to be a way to God are thieves and robbers. But what are the spiritual implications of Jesus' claim to be the door? brings us to Jesus provides for his sheep. Now we talked a little bit about this this morning. This again is emphasized here in verse 9. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. There are two things here to consider. The first one is Jesus is the only source. Jesus is the only source of salvation, of safety, and of sustenance for his, his sheep. Jesus says that, Whoever enters through him will be saved. Going in and out pictures safety. Uh, Finding pasture uh, pictures sustenance. And so notice how he provides. First of all, Jesus provides salvation. In the context of the sheep analogy, being saved refers to protecting the sheep from predators that would kill them. 
But Jesus obviously has the idea of spiritual salvation behind these words. We saw in John three seventeen, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know, I think we often kind of toss that word saved around a little bit, and uh, maybe without thinking just how far-reaching it is. We say, I'm saved. We might ask somebody, are you saved? You know, nowadays some people might say, what, what do you mean, saved? What's that mean? And I think we need to be able to explain that. You know, if you're doing basically okay on your own, you may appreciate a helpful word of advice occasionally, a bit of encouragement, but you don't need to be saved. You only need to be saved when you're helplessly, hopelessly lost. Instead of being saved, maybe we should use the word rescued. You don't need to be rescued if you're doing fine on your own, do you? You only need to be rescued when you're unable to, on your own, to get out of that situation that will lead you to your death. Well, in spiritual terms, the Bible is clear that before you believe in Christ, you're not going to, you're not just going to die, but you're already dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins, it tells us in Ephesians 2.1. And as such, you are, uh, were what Paul calls a child of wrath. In John's terms, back in chapter 336, the wrath of God was abiding on you. You're under God's righteous condemnation for your sins. Being spiritually dead, there was no way that you could rescue yourself or you could do anything to help out with your rescue. You needed God's intervention. It's exactly what God did when he sent his unique son to this world. Jesus came to seek and to save lost sinners, the Bible tells us. And on the cross, he bore the wrath of God on behalf of all who believe in him. Using the shepherd and sheep analogy, 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 puts it like this. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. I trust each one of you tonight, under the sound of my voice, has taken refuge in Jesus as your Savior. He is the only source of salvation because no one else can bear God's wrath on our behalf. No one else can pay for your sins. Jesus provides salvation. Secondly, Jesus provides safety. This is the main idea behind the picture of sheep going in and out. To find pasture, I was reading one writer who recently, he, uh, recently, and he says this that this was the Jewish way of describing a life that is absolutely secure and safe. If the country was under siege, people had to stay inside their city walls. You know, we don't have walls around our cities these days like they did back in that day. And if they were being attacked by the enemy, they had to stay inside of their city walls. But when they were at peace and the ruler, the king, the whoever was in charge was upholding law and order, people could come and go as they wished. In and out. 
Moses used this language in praying for his successor in Numbers chapter 27, verse 16 and 17, when he said, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, and which may lead them out, and which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep, which have no shepherd. And so when Jesus, the good shepherd, guards the flock, they are secure. They can go in and out and they can find pasture. The term also was a Hebrew expression that meant uh, familiar access. In Acts one twenty one, Peter mentions the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Acts 9.28 mentions after Paul's conversion when Barnabas introduced him to the apostles and they came to trust that he would was really saved, he was really converted. Paul was with them coming in and out of Jerusalem. Literally the Greek reads he was going in and out. That's the picture that we have here. That's a picture of safety. You're not worried about someone attacking you. Go in and out. So the spiritual picture is that if you've entered the fold of through Jesus, who is both the shepherd and the door, he is the one who provides safety and familiar access. He is guarding all of your ways. You can go out to the rich pasture lands that he provides, or you can come into the safety of the fold as you please. It's not talking about going in and out of salvation, okay? That's not what it's talking about. Thirdly, Jesus provides sustenance. This is the picture behind pasture, as well as the idea of abundant life. It's not pointing to having an abundance of material goods, but rather to the soul satisfaction that comes when you know that the Lord is your shepherd. You know that he's caring for you and he prepares a table before you even in the presence of his enemies so that your cup overflows. That sounds a lot like Psalm 23, doesn't it? He goes with you even through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, Jesus isn't promising an easy life where there are no trials or where you get instant deliverance. One writer writing about the book of Romans said, I have taught the book of Romans some 80 times, and the pastures are still green. You know, you can go through this book time and time and time again, and you'll find it to be rich in truth that you've never seen before. I think about when we were first married. We lived on a farm. We were, I was teaching school, and uh, we rented a little farmhouse from a fellow teacher he was a farmer teacher farmer slash teacher he he was doing both and we rented his grandparents farmhouse and we were going to plant a garden one year the first year we got there and there was a piece of ground there in the front of the house we thought well this will make a good garden I think there had been a garden there before so we thought nothing seemed to grow well the next year he said you know there's a place, there's a pasture right here where the cows come up to drink water. We could fence a little bit of that off, and I'll plow it up for you. Boy, did we have a garden. We had an abundant garden. We had a green bean leaves that were huge, you know, and green beans galore. And we had all kinds of, of, of good vegetables. We had an abundant life because 
We had a pasture that was, was fertile. Jesus provides that kind of, of supply for us, that kind of sustenance. I'm not a fan of those who mingle psychology with the Bible. I'm not favorable toward popular 12-step programs. Maybe you've known someone that's gone through one of these programs and and maybe they've had a certain amount of success. Some have asked, you know, if psychology or 12-step programs help people deal with their problems, what's wrong with that? Well, in a nutshell, what's wrong is that these approaches help people without directing them to Christ alone for salvation. It does not point them to Christ alone for safety. Does not point them to Christ alone for sustenance. The self-help programs such as 12-step are not Christ-centered. Oh, they talk about God at times. Their approach is not to bring people under the lordship of Christ. Rather, they use Christ or God, however you define him. Sometimes they just call him a higher power. But they use that higher power to get what you want. Do you want sobriety? Well, work the steps. The steps will give you sobriety. Are you dealing with an alcoholic family member? Well, try the steps. They will give you the the stability you've been looking for. So then Christ, however you conceive him to be, becomes merely a means to achieve your agenda. Is that what Christianity is all about? Certainly not. Because he then is not the source of your salvation, your safety, and your sustenance. But as the door, Jesus provides salvation and safety and sustenance. He is the one that meets all the spiritual needs. He is the only source. Notice then, secondly, his blessings are for all who enter through him. Here's the condition. In verse 9, I am the door, by me, notice the word, next word, if. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The invitation is open to anyone and everyone, but you must enter through Jesus alone. Any other way would be illegitimate. How do you enter? Well, that's the theme of the entire book of, 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 of John here, the Gospel of John. He wrote these things and he gave these signs that Jesus did. As he says in chapter 20 and verse 31, the kind of the theme verse of the book, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Or as he said back in chapter 1 and verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Or as he said in John 3 and verse 16, the verse that led me to to the Lord, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To enter through Jesus, the door, means to believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God, who died for your sins and was raised from the dead. Have you done that? Have you put your trust in Jesus as your only hope for eternal life? Maybe you're a young person here tonight. We have a number of young people here tonight. 
And you're probably saying, or you could be saying, I'll probably do that someday. But I want to have a little fun first. I want to enjoy some of the pleasures of this world while I can. And then later, maybe I'll trust Jesus. Maybe later. You know, that's a serious mistake. Because later may not come. It may be too late. Don't say, I'll do it someday. Today is the day of salvation. Notice, fourthly, Jesus has a purpose for his sheep. Jesus' purpose for his sheep is radically opposed to the purposes of the false shepherds. The abundant life versus destruction and death. Verse 10. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that you might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. There are only two ways to live your life. You can pursue this world for satisfaction or you can seek after God to satisfy. The world under the dominion of Satan will rob you, will kill you, will destroy your soul. Jesus offers life and he offers it more abundantly. Understand that the Eskimos have an interesting way of killing wolves. They take a sharp knife, they dip it in seal fat, and plant the blade of the knife up in the snow. A hungry wolf will smell the seal fat, which he loves, and he'll find the knife, and he'll begin to lick it. And as soon as he licks it, he begins to taste blood. His own blood. But he loves the taste of blood, so he licks it more and more until he finally kills himself. And what he thought at first was really living was actually killing him. Gorging yourself on this world and its sinful pleasures is just like that. At first it tastes good, but it's really destroying you. And only Jesus ultimately satisfies the soul. Only Jesus can reconcile you to God and give you real life, abundant life, that begins now and continues all through eternity. Matthew Henry, the well-known pastor and Bible commentator, was on his deathbed in 1714 at the age of 52. He had suffered the loss of his first wife and of three children. He was relatively young, He could have complained about his earthly death, but he said to a friend, You have been used to take notice of the sayings of dying men, and this is mine, that a life spent in the service of God and communion with Him is the most comfortable and pleasant life that one can live in this present world. Some of you perhaps remember that TV game show, let's make a deal. You know, remember the contestants, they would choose between a prize that was right there before them, visible, or there was another prize that was concealed behind a curtain or a door. And the visible prize was usually very nice, maybe like an expensive TV or a stereo. Sometimes the unseen prize turned out to be a joke, like, 10,000 boxes of toothpicks. Other times, the person chose the visible gift 
discovered to their horror that they had passed up behind the curtain a new car. How's they say it? A new car! You know, worth thousands of dollars. And whenever that happened, you felt, you know, the contestant had that awful feeling. And maybe you had that feeling in the pit of your stomach as well. They made the wrong choice. Listen, don't make the wrong choice spiritually. The visible prize is all the stuff you see around you in this world. But when you enter through Jesus as the door, you gain the things that eye cannot see or ears cannot hear, which have not entered in the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. These are important things to think about, aren't they? Jesus is the only door. The others, they're all thieves and robbers. Jesus provides for his sheep, and then Jesus has a purpose for his sheep. I trust that God will use this in our lives tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.